Hi, my name is Elijah, and I have the privilege to serve as the creative pastor here at City Life Church. We just wanted to quickly thank you. Thank you for tuning in wherever you may be watching from. Hey, if you haven't already, please go ahead and click the like and subscribe button. We believe that God has an amazing word for you today. So let's jump into today's message. Today, I want to bring you a message called Haunted by Hurt. And I want to add to your series you've been in. And um, I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 5. When King Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. So he inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dream or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium. Maybe your translation says a witch. So I may go and inquire of her. There is one at Endor, they said. So King Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night with two men, he went to this woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said, surely you know that what King Saul has done, he has cut off mediums and spiritualists and witches from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? The king said to her, though, um, by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up? Bring up the old prophet Samuel, he said. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out to the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul, the king. And the king said, don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up from the earth. What does he look like, he asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up. Then the king knew the old prophet Samuel had appeared. Um, would you just bow your head for a quick prayer, just as a consent to the Holy Spirit to work in your heart? Father, we just ask today that you would do um, what only you can do in this moment. Would you perform heart surgery? And God, may every person taste of your healing work today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, there are some passages of scripture that are encouraging, like the ones that hang on your refrigerator or you post on social media. There are some that are challenging, and then there's just some that are plain weird. This is of the weirder kind of scripture. I mean, this doesn't look like scripture. This looks like an episode of Stranger Things. Uh, we've got a king who's disguised going to a, a witch to pull up an old prophet who's died. I mean, Immediately the questions begin to flood and you start asking, what would cause God's king to go to such an ungodly place? What would cause this man in his desperation to go searching in the dark arts? I mean, what is his motivation that he would leave the path of light to find a place of such ugliness to find relief? Well, the answer to that question is really summed up in one word. It's the motivation known as rejection. Um, Saul was the first king of Israel, and in wisdom, God paired him with an older mentor, a prophet named Samuel. And together, Samuel and Saul led the nation of Israel towards God's direction and in his righteousness. But as successes mounted, Saul's heart became proud, and he started venturing away from the ways of God and toward his own ways. Now, this happened again and again, but it came to a, a breaking point in 1 Samuel chapter 15 as the old prophet, representing God's conscience, comes to Saul, who is camped with his men, his army, 
And he pulls all the men of Israel together and he publicly humiliates the king. He says, you've ventured from God's ways and God can no longer use you. And in really a dramatic effect, he goes and rips the royal robes of the king and rejects his kingship, therefore, in all the other days. Now, though this was a godly act, the truth is from a mentor, a fatherly type voice, this was a great wound of rejection for Saul. It's a wound that every person in this room has experienced. For some of you, it was from a coach or a teacher or a parent who expressed harsh disappointment. For some of you, it came through a relationship that was followed by a brutal breakup. For some, it happens in small little accounts day after day at a job that doesn't appreciate you. And for some, the full weight of a parent's disapproval was laid on you at some point. The question is not, have you been rejected? The question is, like Saul, does it still haunt you? You see, in Saul's life, this rejection lived on to the point that it started to affect every measure of his life. As a matter of fact, there are three, if you would call them symptoms of rejection, that we see that are unique to Saul compared to any other biblical figure. First of all, Saul was the most insecure biblical figure in, in the full text. I mean, everywhere he went, he was crippled by the opinion of others. Additionally, Saul was also um, incredibly inconsistent in the way he lived. One day championing the works of God, and the next day leading people away from them. But Saul was also inconsolable. It didn't matter if David played his harp, or if he drank wine, or if he had a great victory. He could never seem to find peace in his heart. And I bring that up because so is true with many of you. That your life has also been marked by those three unique symptoms. Some of you are so insecure that every room you walk into, the first thought is, what do people think of me? Some of you are inconsistent. I mean, one day you're wanting to change the world, and the next day you want to leave the world. And a pendulum is what you live on. And then many of you here today are inconsolable in the fact that you've tried drinking it away, shopping it away, you've tried friending it away and successing it away, but you can't ever seem to find the peace that your soul longs for. And while you and Saul are dealing with all of the symptoms, there is a source and under it, it is rejection. That something that happened in your past is still haunting you and keeping you from living with the full emotional health that God would have for you. In desperation, Saul gets to a place where he can no longer take it, and he has to do something about it. So he does what we do many of the times. He goes digging in the past. He goes to a graveyard and has a witch dig up the old prophet. Now, this seems odd until you really think it's really what we do in human nature when we're rejected. We go digging in old memories trying to find peace for present struggles. You see, Saul went and dug up an old grave, but what we do is dig up old text messages, rereading every single word in hopes that we would see something we didn't see before. We go digging up memories of what they said and how they said it, and maybe I misunderstood, and maybe there's something there that can provide me some measure of comfort. We go and dig it up in conversations again and again and again, thinking if we get enough people to see it our way, that we will have the peace we so desire. We dig and we dig and we dig in the past looking for hope in the future, but what we fail to realize is while digging in the past, we're actually doing, or should I say, undoing some things in the present. 
First and foremost, you can't go digging in your past without giving up your identity in Christ. You see, the Bible tells us that Saul, in order to go doing this, he took off the crown and the royal robes, and instead he put on common clothes. And what that tells me is you can't rule over others if you're governed by their opinion. The Bible says that in 1 Peter 2 and 9 that you're a royal priesthood, that you, you walk in royalty with authority from Christ. But guess what I've learned? You can't be rejected and the righteousness of Christ at the same time. You can't walk in spiritual authority and in security at the same time. In order to go digging in the past, you have to take off what Christ has put on you in order to do it. We also don't recognize this, that when we go digging in the past hoping to find life, usually all we find is death. The Bible says that when Saul went, that he was hoping to find a word, maybe an apology, some contrition from the old prophet. Sure enough, here comes the ghost of Samuel walking straight up. But instead of bringing any kind of warmth or acceptance, the Bible says that he gives a prophecy. And here was the prophecy. Saul Tomorrow, you and your sons will be here with me. He went hoping to find healing, and instead he found death. You see, most um, scholars believe this is, in fact, not Samuel. That a witch doesn't have the power to pull someone out of heaven and bring them back to earth. That instead, it's an apparition. It's an angel of darkness parading as an angel of light. It's a deception. It's the idea that anytime we let hurt, rejection, or untreated pain remain, you will find the voice of your spiritual enemy taking full advantage of that hurt. And instead of showing up with life, he always shows up with a pronouncement of death. And that is the reason that it used to be you'd go back to those memories every once in a while, but now you find yourself living in those memories. It used to be just something you thought about when, when you came to an occasional um, reminder, but now you find that you have a predisposition. Your mind's always in that hurt, always in that pain, always in that old job at the old church and the old relationship. And what you, if you could see yourself spiritually, what you're seeing is you living with one foot in the grave. While you've been digging, hoping to find healing, what you don't realize is your spiritual enemy has grabbed hold and now there is a pull. And that's the reason those memories are more frequent and that's the reason the pain is more consistent is because you are now not just digging in the grave, you are being pulled deeper, 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 deeper into it more and more. And his goal is that you would eventually never escape it again. Now here's the truth. On that day, digging in the past killed Saul. Most likely, your rejection is not going to cause you to die, but it is going to keep you from living. I uh, began pastoring in my 20s, pretty young, and I am convinced that it was the enemy's ploy in my first couple years to so affect me with rejection that I would either quit or I would develop such a hard heart that I could not minister out of Christ's love. I'll never forget in my first two years, I got an email from an elder. His family was very prominent in our church, and, and I had eaten with him. I had spent time with him. I loved him. He asked for a meeting, and I thought nothing of it because he had always been such a fan. We sat down in my office, and I can still see the couch that he was sitting on. We talked for a few minutes about the weather and some chit-chat, and then he said, well, pastor, I just need to get to the point. My family and I are going to be resigning all our positions, and we're going to be leaving. Immediately, I started questioning what happened, who offended you, what took place, assuming that it must have been some occurrence. And he said, well, 
He said, I just don't know how any other way to put it, but you just don't have what we need. He began to tell me about how another minister with a massive platform had really gotten their attention. They had begun to comparing that person to me and how they recognized that I just didn't have what it took, took to minister to their family. I remember him saying, you're just a nice guy. He said, he said, you're a nice guy, but I just don't think you've got what it takes. In the moment, I was first shocked because I, I, I thought this family loved me. Next, I was angry because I thought of all that I had invested in them. But mostly, I just felt broken in that moment because what he was saying was what I already thought, that I don't have what it takes. In that moment, he resigned his positions, and he left our church, and he left my office. But then there, there was a strange occurrence. He had left, but he was more present than ever before. Although he was nowhere near the building, I could hear his voice every time it was open. Although he no longer listened to my messages, I could hear him in my ear as I preached him. He no longer ever attended a service, but I felt as though he sat beside me every single week. Didn't hold any positions, but held me hostage. I was haunted by hurt. One of the ways you can know you're haunted by hurt is by the fact that even when you're trying to do someone, something else, your mind keeps going back to the hurt. I remember one day I was praying. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you start praying in this direction, but your mind wanders to a totally different direction. I remember praying about different things, and before it was all said, I was back in that office, back in that conversation, listening again to what he said, hoping to find relief. I had done it countless times, but something was different this time. The Holy Spirit in his mercy allowed me to hear myself. It's almost as if, though, he, he, he shouted on the inside of my spirit, and I heard him say, Son, unless you let this die, it's not going to let you live. And that was a wake-up call for me that I was digging in a grave, that I was back in a memory that was not going to bring any life. And the Holy Spirit used that wake-up call to lead me through a process that I received healing and finally laid that pain to rest. Listen, I know we don't know each other super well, but I've come to announce that the same work the Holy Spirit did in me, he wants to do in your heart today. That something your parents said, an employer said, a coach said, or a spouse said, that's still haunting you can be put to rest. That the Holy Spirit still mends hearts. That he still administers peace to troubled souls. That he is able to have a funeral today, but it's not yours. Instead, it will be the rejection that has been haunting you will finally be laid to rest with a closed grave so that you can move forward in what God has for your life. And what I particularly love about this is that in his timing, he's chosen to do it this week. The week that you're going to have to be around most of the people that have rejected you. <laughs> so what I want to do today is I want to give you um, the four things that have to happen for you to heal from rejection. And we're going to go through them, and I want you to write them down, but I also want you to participate in them today. We're going to have a power res powerful response at the end. Here's the first one. If you want to heal from rejection, you have to first enter God's presence. Years ago, I was traveling from one ministry date, uh, one ministry city to another. It was on a Sunday, and, and I started getting a craving for God's food, God's chicken, Chick-fil-A. Listen, the only time I want Chick-fil-A is on a Sunday. Isn't that the only time you want it? 
Well, I, I recognized they weren't, that Chick-fil-A wasn't going to be open, so I decided to stop at another restaurant that really is only known for chicken. I mean, we're talking about a place that advertises chicken, chicken's on the menu, no, their songs are about chicken, that's, that's all they serve. I pulled in, I went inside, there was a young lady behind the counter, I went up to the counter, I said, I'll uh, take a number one, a chicken sandwich, and she said, I'm sorry, sir, we're out of chicken. Out of chicken? Why, why, why is the doors open if y'all are out of chicken? This is all that's here is chicken, right? And she said, well, we don't have any chicken, but we do have a fish sandwich if you'd like it. Now, the last place I want to go for a fish sandwich is a chicken place. In this moment, I experienced the disappointment we have all experienced, which is this. When you show up to somewhere that says they have something only to find out they cannot provide what they claim they have. The point I'm making is this, is that when your soul's hurting, the world says sex will heal. It says TikTok can heal. It says money can heal and fame can heal. It says notoriety can heal, but guess what? They don't have any chicken. The only place that can heal your troubled soul is the one who created your soul. And you have to enter God's presence in order to experience the healing you want. We need to remind ourselves that it's only in God's presence that we find the one who has all that we need. It's in his presence that the fullness of joy is found, heaviness is lifted in his presence and direction becomes clear in his presence. His presence can do for you what no pill or person or accomplishment ever could do for you. It's in his presence that we find the one who has and the knowledge of what we need. He is able to come in and reignite apathetic hearts. He's able to extinguish angry hearts. He is able to come in and mend broken hearts. In his presence, we find what we find nowhere else in the world. Listen, you can go to interesting places. You can meet nice people. You can even get a lot of stuff, but your soul will not be satisfied because your soul was made by God for God to need God it's God crazed God smitten God hungry and until you put your soul in his presence you will not find the rest your soul needs healing is in his presence for your soul to be well it's got to be with God now listen that's the reason that Psalm 28 7 says in him my heart trusts it means outside of him, my heart remains closed. You see, it's when we get in God's presence, we're reminded, I don't have to heal myself, that there is one who can heal me. And make no mistake about it, Saul ended up in death because he went to the wrong presence. Instead of going to God's presence, he went to the enemy's. And right now, depending on where you take your pain, the presence you put it in will determine if you move forward or stay in the grave. But I should acknowledge this, that the Bible says that God is omnipresent theologically. That means he's present everywhere at all times. Let me say, you've never been anywhere that you're not in God's presence. But this is the distinction. You can be in God's presence, but not have entered God's presence. That's how people come to church week in, week out, and leave with the same pain. They're in his presence, but they have not entered his presence. The only way we enter his presence is through worship and praise. But the problem is when you're hurting, you don't feel like worshiping and praising. We just want to set in our pain, set in our hurt. We don't feel like it. But guess what? That's why scripture calls it a sacrifice of praise. We're sacrificing our feelings in order to enter his presence. The, Jesus said there are four ways God loves to be worshipped. With all of his heart, with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. Four ways God likes to be worshipped, but most of us only worship God one way, the way we're most comfortable with. That's the reason expressive people express, and intellectual people think, and service-oriented people serve. 
But when you're hurting, here's what you need to understand. God's calling you to express something that's not comfortable. He's calling you to stretch your worship, to offer in faith, not feeling, a praise that's uncommon from you. That's the reason that some of you today need to determine, I'm going to lift my hands and I normally don't. Some of you need to determine, I'm going to, I'm going to lift my voice and I never have. Some of you need to determine, I'm going to let the tears flow because you need to offer something you've never offered in order to enter a presence in a way you've never been before. Here's the second one. You have to then unmask and admit that you were hurt. I had a friend who knew I was preaching here today, and he knew I was preaching this message, and he said, man, he said, it's too bad you're preaching it around Thanksgiving and not Halloween. And I said, ah, that's okay. Church people always wear masks. They come in, fake, filtering their feelings, acting as like everything's okay when it's really not. And in order to heal, let me just tell you, you're going to have to get to the place where you care more about your healing than your appearance. Saul was more worried about what he was wearing than if God actually did a work in his heart and it ended up killing him. Your dishonesty is the obstacle to healing. And, and I don't want to trivialize this, but, but the reality is that our, our feelings are completely complex. You see, what's going on inside of you is probably not even something you recognize anymore. Because what's happened is you endured rejection, but then life kept moving. Me memories piled on and other situations and other hurts, lies from the enemy. And before it's all said and done, you just feel like you got a, a big feeling on the inside of you, but you can't exactly match it any longer to what took place. It's like in our home, we have a basket full of single socks. I don't know how this happens, but somehow in our laundry room, from the washer to the dryer, two go into the washer, but somehow only one comes out of the dryer. I don't know if there's a portal to another dimension or someone's playing a cruel joke, but the basket of single socks continues to build and my sock drawer continues to empty. And we're left with a bunch of single socks that have no match. Many people... They're holding up anger, but they can't remember why they're angry. They're holding up a wound, but they can't remember why they feel wounded. Life goes fast, and they keep pressing on, and before it's all said and done, we just think we are angry. We are wounded. But let me tell you that in order to heal, you have to make the match. When Jesus talked about forgiveness, did you know that he used a very specific analogy? And here was the analogy of an accountant. Accountants don't work in generalities, they work in exact. Here's what Jesus was saying, you can't release a feeling, you have to release a person. You can't forgive a feeling, you have to forgive an event. You have to take what you feel knowing, I shouldn't be this angry, I shouldn't be this sad, I shouldn't be this anxiety filled, and you have to match it to what they said, what they did, and what you endured. And that's the reason you have to take off the mask, because it's very hard for you to untangle your own emotions. That's the reason we haven't just been given Christ, but we've been placed in the body of Christ. Listen, you think you just attended a church. No, 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 no. God put you in a family. And in this family, 
as much of the healing he wants to do. Because when you take off the mask to a trusted pastor, to an elder, to someone who's a group leader, when you take off the mask, here's what happens. You start to share how they feel, how you feel, but they see it without the emotion and they can help you match what happened to what's going on in your heart. But listen to me. Until you're willing to step out of isolation into an honest relationship, you're just going to hurt. Saul was the most isolated character in all of Scripture, not a single significant relationship, and it killed him. So some of you need to go up to somebody and say, can I talk to you? I want to share something with you I've never shared with another person. And I know that's intimidating, but listen, when somebody comes and says, Pastor Joe, I want to tell you something I've never told anyone else, I get excited because I know grace is about to move in. I know light is coming to what's been dark. I know that there's a healing that's getting ready to be released because when we take off the mask, the healing can begin. Now, here's the, the, the next one. You have to then release your pain. You know, it's interesting. We have five kids, and, and, and they, they all kind of done the same thing, that in, in the event of playing, they'll get hurt. Let's say one of them hurts their arm. They all do the same thing. They start to cry, and then they run in the house, and they run directly to me. And they'll, they'll tell me what happened. I got hurt. Here, my arm, it's hurt. And I'll say, okay, let me help. But the minute that I reach out to, to take it, they pull it back. Don't touch it. They come to the right place, but they won't release me to help. Do you know how many people come to the right place? Week after week, service after service, but they won't let Jesus help. And that's because our pain is incredibly valuable to us. The reason you hold on to rejection is not because you want to be rejected. It's because it's proof it happened. This is, this is the certificate that proved I endured this. And I would never release something that I, I lived through like this to someone I'm not sure you can handle it correctly. You see, in order for us to, be, to release pain to someone, we have to trust they know what to do with it. It's the same measure of you would never lay down on a surgical table unless you were certain of the qualifications of the surgeon. I remember, you know, obviously we got five kids, so this topic of a vasectomy has come up many times. I remember one time a, guy, a friend of mine looked at me and said, hey, man, if you decide to do that, I know a guy who can do it cheap. <laughs> Let me just be clear in our friendship. I'm not looking for the clearance rack vasectomy. I'm going to the Mayo Clinic. I want board certified. I want Harvard graduated. I'll take the top of the class because I'm not going to let an area of my life that is so precious be operated on somebody whom I do not trust. The same thing's true in our lives with our pain. And that's the reason you need to know very clearly, I can't heal your pain. Your friends can't heal your pain. There is only one who is qualified, and his name is Jesus. And that's not just something I'm saying. You need to understand his qualifications. Jesus was the most rejected man on earth. His father meant to abandon him at the announcement of his pregnancy. King Herod had every single person that was his same age killed because he so rejected him. They tried to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth. His own brothers and sisters said that he was crazy and needed to be committed. His teachers and mentors all said that he was a lunatic. Those trusted, those, those trusted disciples 
Peter denied him three times. Thomas, looking at the resurrected Lord, said, nah, I'm not sure that you've resurrected. And he had to sit across from Judas every night for three years knowing he'd stab him in the back. The Greeks, didn't, the Greeks rejected him. The Romans rejected him. The Jews rejected him. Soldiers mocked him. The crowd laughed. Thieves rejected the premise that he was the Messiah. And none of that paled in comparison to the fact that his own heavenly father, while he was on the cross, turned his back, rejecting him because of our sin. If you're wanting to know about his qualifications when it comes to rejection, you should know that when it comes to Jesus, he's studied criticism at every level, traveled abroad enduring false accusations. His undergrad is in betrayal. He minored in discrimination. He majored in injustice. His graduate degree is in humiliation with a specialty in heartbreak. He doesn't just know the topic through and through. He knows your rejection through and through. The Bible says he was present. He heard every word. He saw every event. And he collected your tears. That's why he and he alone is qualified to take what you carry. His hand is steady. His heart is ready. He'll restore any bit of sorrow. But you have to consent. You have to be willing to get on the table. And you have to be able to say, do this work in me. And I know that's hard because some of you, you don't even feel like you're hurting anymore. You feel like you've been buried. You say, Pastor Joe, the rejection's so heavy. I struggle to breathe. I struggle to think. It's consumed my entire life. Uh, in the 1800s, there was a man named Michelle Carnicki who had heard about an occurrence of people who had accidentally been buried alive. Due to the way medical science was at the time, there were occasionally people who were thought dead that were actually put in coffins and buried. So he patented the safety coffin. It's not actually something that was used, but he did submit the patent. You can see here that he, um, it was a two-way system. First of all, if you were happy to be buried alive, you could open up a vent that would allow air to come from the surface in to keep you. And then you would be given a string with a bell on the surface level so that you could ring it if, in fact, you were buried alive. Now, the whole system worked with the predication that the cemetery hired a very important position called the watchman, someone who would remain after the mourners had gone and the family had left, someone who would walk the grounds of freshly dug graves and listen for signs of life. And if the watchman, in fact, heard that there was someone buried alive, he would then move into rescue mode. He would dig away all the dirt, move away all of the stones, lift up the lid, and release the person back to life. I bring this up because for some of you, you feel like your past has completely buried your future. As a matter of fact, experts even say what you've went through, people don't recover from, and some of your friends or employers or maybe even your parents have said, you know what, I just don't see signs of those dreams coming to life anymore. They don't believe that there's still life in you, but there is one who's still listening because there is life still in you. And his name is Jesus, and he provides as a watchman over your life, and he walks through our lives, through this room today, listening for the slightest sound of a cry that says, take this pain. And for any heart that cries, take this pain. He feverishly digs through lies and through shame and through doubt, and he lifts us back to life. You don't have to dig yourself out of this. There is one who will. You just have to depend on the Lord Jesus to heal your pain. Now that 
would be a great place to end a message. But that's not the end of the healing you need. As a matter of fact, let me say it this way. The reason many people get out of the grave but end up back in it is because they miss the last point, which is that you then have to receive God's blessing. You see, releasing your pain, which many of you have done countless times in altar calls and in prayer moments, that's what gets you out of the grave. But receiving the blessing of God is what puts rejection in the grave. Because if you believe what God says about you, there's no way you can be rejected by someone else. Because his approval outranks all others. And this is true of Saul. You see, if Saul had chosen to dig in his memory instead of in a grave, here's what he would have remembered. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, before he was even the king, the Holy Spirit stirred a prophet to pronounce a blessing over Saul. And here's what the blessing was. Saul, I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to give you gifts. Go and do whatever is in your heart, for I am with you. Can you consider how sad this is? Saul spent his whole life looking for something he already had. The Christian life really boils down to this. Do you live for approval or from approval? And if you ever learn to live from God's approval, it's nearly impossible for you to be rejected. And I know that's hard to believe because some of you would say, Pastor, this rejection has caused me to make so many bad decisions. I've medicated it. I've made, had so many relationship turns. I've acted out. This pain, this hurt has caused me to hurt other people. There's no way I, God could bless me. Um, one of my dearest friends, name is Scott. His dad's name's Robert. Robert's uh, in his 80s now. They told me this story. They said, when Scott was in a junior in high school, he played on the baseball team. They were at a double header. That means two games back to back. And uh, the first game was very close. Scott's team was down by one run. It's the last inning. There was a couple people on base, and Scott came up to the plate with a chance to win the game. The pitcher rears back, releases a feverish fastball. Scott takes a big swing, connects, and hits the game-winning double. The crowd goes crazy. Smiles all around. Scott's team comes out and carries him off the field celebrating. One of the best moments of your entire life. Once everything had kind of quieted down and people had gotten, you know, over the celebration, the next game started. Again, it was very close, back and forth, back and forth. And in a strange coincidence, it came down to the final inning. Scott's team, again, was down one run with some people on base. And can you believe it? Scott comes up to the plate again. This time he walks up with a lot of confidence, though. I mean, he won the last game. He thinks, I'll win this one. He steps up. Pitcher rears back, releases that fastball again. This time, it, Scott lets it go by, strike one. Second wind-up from the pitcher, he releases the ball. Scott takes a big swing, but he fouls it off, strike two. Third pitch, pitcher changes it up and releases a curveball. Scott has seconds, milliseconds to read it. He thinks it's outside. He lets it go past, thinking it's a ball, only to hear the umpire scream, strike, ball game. All of a sudden, there's no cheer. Just a groan from the crowd. 
No players from Scott's team come out to meet him. Instead, they all throw their hat down, begin to pack up. And the full weight of failure lands on Scott's shoulders. He drops his head standing at home plate. All of a sudden, though, he hears one lone voice, a familiar voice, in the crowd at distance, and he hears this, that's my boy! That's my boy! 13, that's my son! He looks back, and there's his father, clapping with all his might, screaming to the top of his lungs, announcing to the whole park that the one who just struck out was his. People begin to leave, and Scott's dad, Robert, comes down on the field. Scott's eyes are welling up with tears. Robert goes up and puts his arms around Scott and says to him, Son, no strikeout will ever negate the fact you're mine. And I just think if some of you, if the Holy Spirit would allow your eyes to be open today to, to the spiritual world, you would not find God's distance or that he's turned his back in any way. You would find him leaning over the balcony of heaven, looking at you, shouting, that one, that's my boy. That's my daughter. The one in the middle of that divorce, she's mine. The one in the middle of that addiction, he's mine. The one who's had an awful season of choices, that's my boy. That's my girl. You see, you're not a disappointment to your heavenly father. You're the apple of his eye. He, he's not turned his back on you. He's never left you nor forsaken you. You don't have to go searching for his approval. You've never lived a day without it. You just have to receive that blessing. Thank you so much for watching this message. We pray that it encouraged you. Our church is not built on one individual, but on the sacrifice of so many. And so you being a part of that means so much to us. Our vision here at City Life is to reach the lost, help restore what has been broken, and to release people into their God-given purpose. If you would like to partner with us today, text GIVE to 844-311-1777 or visit our website. For more great content and messages, be sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can also download our City Life app and follow us on Facebook and Instagram while you're at it. Our services are at 9.30, 10.30, and 11.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'd love to have you be with us in person at one of our locations. And like we say here at City Life, go and be the city.